Coffee Break Collection 15. The World of Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Descent of Man by Edith Wharton. Chapter 6. The professor all the while was leading a double life. While the author of The Vital Thing reaped the fruits of popular approval, the distinguished microscopist continued his laboratory work unheeded, save by the few who were engaged in the same line of investigations. His divided allegiance had not hitherto affected the quality of his work. It seemed to him that he returned to the laboratory with greater zest after an afternoon in a drawing-room, where readings from The Vital Thing had alternated with plantation melodies and tea. He had long ceased to concern himself with what his colleagues thought of his literary career. Of the few whom he frequented, none had referred to the vital thing, and he knew enough of their lives to guess that their silence might as fairly be attributed to indifference as to disapproval. They were intensely interested in the professor's views on beetles, but they really cared very little what he thought of the Almighty. The professor entirely shared their feelings, and one of his chief reasons for cultivating the success which accident had bestowed on him was that it enabled him to command a greater range of appliances for his real work. He had known what it was to lack books and instruments, and the vital thing was the magic wand which summoned them to his aid. For some time he had been feeling his way along the edge of a discovery balancing himself with professional skill on a plank of hypothesis flung across an abyss of uncertainty. The conjecture was the result of years of patient gathering of facts. Its corroboration would take months more of comparison and classification. But at the end of the vista, victory loomed. The professor felt within himself that assurance of ultimate justification which, to the man of science, makes a lifetime seem the mere comma between premise and deduction, but he had reached the point where his conjectures required formulation. It was only by giving them expression, by exposing them to the common and criticism of his associates, that he could test their final value, and this inner assurance was confirmed by the only friend whose confidence he invited. Professor Pease, the husband of the lady who had opened Mrs. Linyard's eyes to the triumph of the vital thing, was the repository of her husband's scientific experiences. What he thought of the vital thing had never been divulged, and he was capable of such vast exclusions that it was quite possible that pervasive work had not yet reached him. In any case, it was not likely to affect his judgment of the author's professional capacity. You want to put that all in a book, Lindyard, was Professor Peace's summing up, I'm sure you've got hold of something big, but to see it clearly yourself you ought to outline it for others. Take my advice. Chuck everything else and get to work tomorrow. It's time you wrote a book anyhow. It's time you wrote a book anyhow. The words smote the professor with mingled pain and ecstasy. He could have wept over their significance. But his friend's other phrase reminded him with a start of harvest. You have got hold of a big thing. It had been the publisher's first comment on the vital thing. But what a world of meaning lay between the two phrases. It was the world in which the powers who fought for the professor 
were destined to wage their final battle, and for the moment he had no doubt of the outcome. The next day he went to town to see Harvis. He wanted to ask for an advance on the new popular edition of The Vital Thing. He had determined to drop a course of supplementary lectures at the university, and to give himself up for a year to his book. To do this, additional funds were necessary. But, thanks to The Vital Thing, they would be forthcoming. The publisher received him as cordially as usual, but the response to his demand was not as prompt as his previous experience had entitled him to expect. "'Of course we'll be glad to do what we can for you, Lanyard. But the fact is we've decided to give up the idea of the new edition for the present.' "'You've given up the new edition?' "'Why, yes. We've done pretty well by the vital thing, and we're inclined to think it's your turn to do something for it now.' The professor looked at him blankly. "'What can I do for it?' he asked. "'What more?' his accent added. "'Why, put a little new life in it by writing something else. The secret of perpetual motion hasn't been discovered, you know, and it's one of the laws of literature that books which start with a rush are apt to slow down sooner than the crawlers. We've kept the vital thing going for eighteen months. But, hang it, it ain't so vital any more.' We simply couldn't see our way to a new edition. Oh, I don't say it's dead yet, but it's moribund, and you're the only man who can resuscitate it. The professor continued to stare. I... What can I do about it? He stammered. Do? Why write another like it? Go at one better. You know the trick. The public isn't tired of you by any means, but you want to make yourself hurt again before anybody else cuts in. Write another book. Write two and we'll sell them in sets in a box. The Vital Thing series. That will take tremendously in the holidays. Try and let us have a new volume by October. I'll be glad to give you a big advance if you'll sign a contract on that. The professor sat silent. There was too cruel an irony in the coincidence. Harvest looked up at him in surprise. Well... What's the matter with taking my advice? You're not going out of literature, are you? The professor rose from his chair. No, I'm going into it, he said simply. Going into it? I'm going to write a real book, a serious one. Good Lord, most people think the vital thing serious. Yes, but I mean something different. In your old line, beetles and so forth? Yes said the professor solemnly. Harvest looked at him with equal gravity. Well, I'm sorry for that, he said, because it takes you out of our bailiwick. But I suppose you've made enough money out of the vital thing to permit yourself a little harmless amusement. When you want more cash, come back to us. Only don't put it off too long, or some other fellow will have stepped into your shoes. Popularity don't keep, you know, and the hotter the success, the quicker the commodity perishes. He leaned back, cheerful and sententious delivering his axioms with conscious kindliness. The professor, who had risen and moved to the door, turned back with a wavering step. "'When did you say another volume would have to be ready?' he faltered. "'I said October. But call it a month later. You don't need any pushing nowadays. "'And you'd have no objection to letting me have a little advance now? I need some new instruments for my real work. Harvis extended a cordial hand. My dear fellow, that's the talking. 
I'll write the check while you wait, and I dare say we can start up the cheap edition of the vital thing at the same time, if you'll pledge yourself to give us the book by November. How much? he asked, poised above his checkbook. In the street the professor stood staring about him, uncertain and a little dazed. After all, it's only putting it off for six months, he said to himself, and I can do better work when I get my new instruments. He smiled and raised his hat to the passing Victoria of a lady in whose copy of the vital thing he had recently written, Labor es etiam ipsa voluptus. End of the Descent of Man Recording by Philip Gould